But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, we looked at this passage last week and basically what we said in introducing it and kind of setting a vantage point in which we're looking upon this is that we can look upon this from an instinct that all human beings have. Paul is, in a sense, speaking to this instinct and he's, in a sense, addressing it and he's putting it in its proper place. There's an instinct that all people have had that is roiling with every human being. It's an instinct that they try to come up with answers for. The answers they come up with produce false religions and false faith and they produce legalism and they produce a hierarchy of people that think that they're morally superior to other people. But the basic desire is this. There is in human beings a basic desire to be good and righteous. <laughs> you ask any little boy or any little girl and ask them if they want to be a good little boy and a good little girl and they'll say yes. Something within them, some impulse within them desires to please and desires to be good and desires to gain the honor of their parents and those that preside over them. Even though we grow up and we become adults, this instinct and this desire for goodness never goes away from us. Last week we briefly spoke about the different ways in which those instincts are in a sense inflamed within us and cultivated within us by our parentage and by our DNA and by the society we live in and by the government we live in. But ultimately said that this instinct to be good is something that is ultimately stoked and inflamed within us by God himself because God made us in his image and God created within us this desire. And Jesus says that the spirit has come to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, the spirit's work still in this hour, in this day, is to place within people a convicting desire. First, they know they're sinners, but it's in light of this. They want to be righteous, and they're not. And because they want to be righteous, and they're not, there's also this creeping conviction that comes upon them by the Holy Spirit that they're facing judgment. And I can speak from experience that you can go to any culture, in any place, in any land, and talk to people from any religion, and you'll find that they have these instincts. They know they're sinners. They want to be right. They're fearing judgment. And they didn't come this as a part of their own natural theology. They didn't reason this from the development of their DNA, from their parentage, from their culture. Ultimately, it's something that is drawn up from within them because the Spirit of God is stirring these instincts and these desires within them. But what it does is this desire produces an ongoing effort in some way or another to prove yourself, to gain some righteousness for yourself, to somehow get to that point in which you think you're fit to be comfortable in your own skin and right with yourself and then maybe right with others and then ultimately right with transcendence or God. And the other thing that's established by that is that it, it never really happens. You never quite get there. There's always this sense of insecurity, no matter what you've done, that you've left some part of the box unchecked, some part of the accomplishment unfulfilled and 
And then if you're really honest, you'll see that not only even not gain ground, but very often you're losing ground in this pursuit to be righteous. So people come up with religious ideas that there's going to be a purgatory or there's going to be a series of reincarnation that you have to go through and that you'll just keep trudging along until sometime you reach it. But here's the net effect of it. This pursuit to establish your own righteousness puts you onto and into an interminably long slog that never seems to end. And you never quite get there. And Paul comes along and says, not only is it a long slog, but it is impossible. It is a futile effort. You are not righteous. Not only are you not righteous, but in your lack of righteousness, you are under the judgment of God and you're under the wrath of God. You're facing a God, a righteous God, whom you're not ready to stand before. And you're trying to build upon a rotten foundation. And so, as we read last week in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, all that effort and all that work to be righteous, all your attempt to find your righteousness in some form of idolatry or all your attempt to be righteous by developing some kind of positive moralism that you follow or you Jews falling upon the law, all of it you're building upon a foundation that's completely rotten because in your own character, in your own self, you're broken and you're fallen, you're unrecognizably sinful. You read Romans 3 verses 10 through 18, you might have a hard time recognizing yourself there. But it's what God sees. It's what you're trying to build on and it's not going to work. Well, this instinct to be right reveals more, though, than a pursuit for just positive status. Beyond wanting to be right, I just want to add to this. It reveals something that's true about us in human nature, which is this. We were made for a unique glory. We were made for a greatness that has not yet fully been realized for a glory and greatness that comes from being with God and knowing God and residing with God. Moses was brought nearer to God through a series of experiences. You might remember that he was in the wilderness and he saw a bush that was burning and there he came to the bush and God spoke out of the bush that was burning and not being consumed. Moses, take your sandals off your feet because you're on holy ground and keep your distance God revealed and spoke to Moses at that time. And then Moses was sent by God to be a liberator for the people of Israel who were slaves in Egypt. There, through a series of tremendous judgments that God brings upon the nation of Israel, God squares off against all the supposed powers of the gods of Egypt, using their powers against them to bring destruction, showing that he's the all-powerful God. And so through all those judgments, God is revealing himself more and more to Moses and the people of Israel. And that God leads them out of their escape and he goes before them as a pillar of fire and he actually puts the fire of his presence between the people of Israel and the advancing armies of Egypt and he divides the Red Sea and they go through it and he brings them out Sinai where God comes down and his presence comes down on the of Mount Sinai with fire and with thunder and lightning and wind and the people hold back and they don't want to hear the voice of God and God calls Moses up in the mount and God speaks to Moses. We know these stories in which Moses is giving these tremendous encounters with God and yet as he's experiencing these things, he wants more. He knows that there's something more that he wants to realize, something more that he wants to experience. It's as if it provokes within his human nature what he was made for. And so Moses is found saying, God, show me your glory. You've revealed so much. And God's glory is the concentrated expression of all the fullness and realization of all of his attributes. It's the full weightiness of the attributes of God. 
God, he says, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. All these things I've seen have been somewhat of a vision or understanding of you that is mitigated to me through different experiences, but I want to look directly in your face and see you. And God responds. God says in verses 19 and 20, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. You can't look fully upon all of my glory, for no man shall see me and live. Even Moses, with all that he experienced and all that God had showed him, was yet not fit to gaze on God without some veil and some mitigation between himself and God. And here is man who has sinned, and our sin has driven us from a realized presence of God. And in that sinful state, we human beings are not fit for that presence. In fact, if we were brought into that presence, we couldn't bear it. We couldn't bear the fully realized presence of God and live. But our instinct to be right reveals this impulse that we were made for God and we long to come into God's presence and we long to see Him and long to be with Him. And it affirms what Augustine said, which was, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in Thee. But the problem is we're not righteous. And we cannot be righteous by our own efforts. We're polluted wells, not capable of pumping out from those wells righteousness to God. Instead, we pump out pollution and unrighteousness. What does Isaiah 64, 6 say? All of our righteousness are like all of our good works, are like filthy rags. So Paul has gone on to demonstrate that this is the state that we're in and that under the state we're under God's judgment and that all of our efforts to remove it by following laws or rules and by seeking to be good in ourselves fail. They won't bring us into God's presence. We can't establish our righteousness through keeping the law. We're without any capacity in ourselves. There's no rule that we can follow. Don't make us right with God. This is where Paul is getting to. This is where Paul is explaining. Here's what we spoke about last week. So Paul is speaking to these individuals in the last part of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, the first part of chapter 3, and he's bringing this conclusion that there's nothing they can do, and they're completely unrighteous, and they're fully under God's judgment. And, and all through that, it's as if Paul is in a diatribe. That is, he's within a dialogue between these individuals. He's having an argument with these different parties, and now these parties concede to what he's saying. They see the darkness of their incapacity, the darkness within their own souls, the darkness of any future. They have no future before them that they can pursue in their own efforts, and they yield to him. And at the very moment at which they yield to him, Paul then, through the Holy Spirit, extends hope to them. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. And Paul gives the but of this conversative statement that when you think you have no hope, God has something to offer you. God has an answer for your long slog and your vain, futile efforts to be right in your own skin and be right before him. And he says, but now, and that is God has a promise against this internally long effort to prove yourself, God in the immediate moment, right now, can make you completely unrighteous. Right now, you can have a standing before God that will reverse and create a concrete reality that you can always live and reside in where you are right before God, the righteousness of God. This means that God not only gives you something, it's not only sourced from God, it not only comes from God, but it is its substances of God himself, a righteousness that belongs to God to come over and come upon you in the place of all your filthy rags, 
And he says it's been revealed. That means it's not worked for. It's not achieved by effort. But it's simply made known to us and brought down to us by God's own revealing. And it, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The faith that brings us to God's righteousness has an object. This is what we said. It sets upon the person of Jesus Christ. That faith does. It sets on Jesus. Jesus lived and as a human being lived a perfectly sinless and righteous life and he gives to those who believe in him that righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. And in that righteousness, we come back into the presence of God. And in that righteousness, we will one day see God and we will experience the full realized glory of God's presence that we were made for. It's coming to us. It's something what we talked about last week. Let's go on and look at and add to some other observations. And the first thing I want you to see in this passage that you have before you, so you've got verses 21 and 22 before you of Romans chapter 3. The first thing I want you to see is that God is offering a universal righteousness to all and upon all who believe in Jesus Christ. It says to all and upon all. So do you see that in verse 22? This righteousness is to all and upon all. To all. Let's think about that for a second. It doesn't depend upon your national status. If you're not a Jew, you're not excluded from this. It's to all. It comes to all. It doesn't depend upon your heritage or your parentage. It doesn't depend upon the moral attainments that you've acquired up to this point or your lack of moral attainments. You're not disqualified by your sins. You're not disqualified by your parentage. You're not disqualified by what you didn't receive or haven't received or where you're from. It's to all who believe, regardless of their past identity. Remember when the angel came and announced the birth of the Lord Jesus? He said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. It comes to everyone. Some years ago, I was... In my first church, I was a youth pastor. A knock came to my door. A, a young woman wanted to speak to me. I'd never met her before. I'd never seen her. Uh, for some reason, she felt herself directed to our church and to the church offices, and she needed to talk to me. And in the midst of the conversation, she had come to the conclusion that she was beyond saving. There was, she had done something that was so awful and so terrible that God could never save her. And, and no matter what I tried, I couldn't convince her otherwise. No matter what I said, I couldn't convince her otherwise. And she wouldn't tell me what it was. It was too awful for me to even know what it was. But it was so great. It was so severe that she knew she could never be forgiven and she could never be saved. At the time, I thought, this is an odd, strange anomaly. I'll, I'll never meet anyone like that. Well, I've met plenty since then. In fact, multiple people like that who have come to some conclusion that there is something in their life some moral failure, something that's happened in their life that is so great and so deep that they can't be saved. And the real problem is this, unbelief. Unbelief. They think their sins are greater and more potent than the righteousness of God. They think that somehow the righteousness that Jesus Christ is offering and would give to us is not so opaque enough to cover us completely without their own sins shining through. My sin, my grief, my misery, my sorrow, my background, my past is more potent and more powerful than anything that the eternal God could put upon me and cover with. I, they're not expressing contrition. They're expressing unbelief. They're expressing unbelief. Oh, anyone can come. Anyone, no matter what they've done. 
no matter where they've been, no matter what their life was, what their past was. I have uh, my first time to Indonesia. I was ministering in a church with a pastor, and the pastor informed me that his father was the first believer in his family and that his grandfather was a cannibal. That's not a great parentage, you see. The ancestry didn't go. He didn't have a long chart. It was anyone, to all, comes this righteousness. To all who believe. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. Some eight years ago or so, I did a training with our pastors in North India. After having received the training, they went out and began to work to pray for their people in their neighborhood and their friends and one pastor was praying for a worker that was helping him build a wall at his house. And this worker ultimately came to hear the gospel from him. This worker had come out of a lifestyle being in drugs. And there was a part of kind of like the, the group of people that were selling drugs. He was struck by the truth of it and he wanted to respond. And his question was, can God save me from any sin? Can God cover any of my sins? Any. Can God save me from the sin of drugs and selling drugs? Yes. Can God save me from the sin of murder? Yes. Life is cheap in those places. God, you can save you from that as well. Do you know that brother is one of the brothers who gathers every week in that pastor's house to pray for me and my family? To all. To all. Just one more story. I was reminded of this just two days ago received an email from our brother Jiman Tequez that we work with in Colombia. He was taking a picture of a work he was doing in the mountains of Colombia with the Giambiano tribesmen. I was there with them just before COVID took place. We did a training there. Can't get around there without a flashlight. In fact, when I went there, the one thing he asked me is if I would bring a pack of flashlights with us because you can't at night travel. It's so dark and you're up in the middle of these mountains. So there was a young student that was leaving and he had a flashlight and he's walking along with a flashlight and all of a sudden a man comes out of the shadows and the man has a, a military rifle. And the man says, I want to travel with you. You need to, to lead me because my flashlight has stopped working. And so you need to take me to where I, I need to go through this path. And so and he was a member of one of these terrorist groups that are active in that area. And they're brutal in their terrorism. The young man thought, well, since I, this man has forced me to go with him, I'll share the gospel with this man. So he starts sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, how Jesus loves you and God sent his son to die for your sins and God can forgive you and can transform your life. And the, they came to the place where the man wanted to depart. He said, I'm taking off here. And he left. The next day, the young student goes back to where the church was gathering. And when he arrived there, this stranger came in. The stranger began to share his testimony. And it had been the terrorist, this man who was a part of this, this terroristic organization, this group that was ruling these mountains. And the man said, I went home and I thought about these things and I responded and I got to forgive my sins and to change my heart and he's transformed me and I don't, I don't want to be a part of the community being a part of and I, I want to confess to you and ask you to forgive me for stealing from your houses, from forcing things upon you, from bringing destruction and I want you to pray for me. But I also, I have to leave now because when you join those groups and you become a follower and you stop being in those groups, you don't live. So I'm going to have to go somewhere else. Would you please pray for me as I travel away? The commitment that man made. But ah, it's a reminder, see. It's to all. To anyone. To all. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. The next thing we see here is God has provided this righteousness upon all that believe. To all and upon all. This righteousness in this sense is described like a coat 
that is placed upon a person, regardless of the stains they bear, regardless of the scars they wear that mar their bodies. Here is this righteousness of God that they're clothed with that completely and utterly covers them. Shared this dream that I had on maybe one or two other occasions. Actually wrote about it in a, a book that I wrote. I don't have very many dreams, and usually when you wake up, you can't remember your dreams, but this dream I remember. In my dream, I was standing on a great plain and looking all the way off to the horizon line, and then it was night, and all of a sudden I saw the sun rising up off of the horizon line, and yet it was more glorious and beautiful than anything I'd ever seen before. And it rose up, and I couldn't take my eyes off of it. It was so beautiful and lustrous and more powerful and potent than anything I'd ever seen before, but at the same time, I could look at it the next thing I realized, it wasn't just rising up and scoping up above me, but that all of a sudden it was advancing towards me with rapidity. And then as I looked and I was stunned at it and I was caught up in the glory of it, I realized that it wasn't the sun, S-U-N, but it was the sun, S-O-N. He was coming for me. And he arrives. It's this bright shining outflow is the outflow and the shining of this glorious robe of righteousness that he's wearing and he's coming for me. And then in my dream, I see that I'm wearing the same robe that what he has on, I have on. And there's an inquisitiveness within me. And he reads what I'm thinking. And what I'm thinking is, how did, this, how did I get this glory? Where did it come from? And he answers me and he says, I place it upon you when you put your faith in me. And you've been wearing it all along since that day. That's being clothed and being clothed upon with the righteousness of God. That's what he offers to all and upon all who believe in him. What a wonderful truth. What a wonderful truth that's being revealed to us here. Let's look at one more thing. God provides this righteousness to all and upon all who believe in Jesus Christ as his response to the universal lack of righteousness, as a response to our sins and the universal lack of any way of achieving righteousness on our own. It says here, for there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we are going to be made righteous, it's going to have to come from somewhere other than ourselves. It's going to have to be a solution, not as all the other religions provide. Work for it, gain it, do this thing, do that thing. It's going to have to be a merit or a righteousness that you can't produce, that God provides for you completely. Because the argument of the New Testament is that it's impossible. Everyone has sinned, and the testimony of their sins witnesses against them. They'll never be made right by their own efforts. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if we're going to be right, it's going to have to come to us by trusting in something that's sourced outside of us to bring that righteousness to us. So Paul's point here, at least in part, is that no one can exempt themselves from this sole option of being made right. No one can say, I'm going to come at this a different way. The Jew can't think that he can establish any righteousness merely by following the moral laws that God gave at Mount Sinai. The morally superior person can't think that they have an advantage over the reprobate, over the thief, or the murderer. Yes, 
Some sins are worse than others. Some sins bring a person lower into the bowels of the earth and near in that sense to hell itself. Others have sins that seemingly are minor and that leave them strutting upon the surface of things. And other sins are awful and they place people in deep, dark, dank ditches and caves of corruption. But regardless of what the sin is, comparatively, none of us have such a righteousness that allows us to scale and reach out and touch the stars. We're still grounded in our sins. And there's only one way for us to gain a righteousness. It's to receive a righteousness that's not our own, that comes by faith alone in the righteous one, Jesus Christ, and what he's provided for us. Now that's part of what is being said here. That's part of the argument. There, there's something else, though, I want you to see here that I think is quite wonderful that we shouldn't miss. It's this, that... This statement that there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is a universal declaration of need that God has answered. And God has answered it because there was no other way for us to be saved. So this passage declares something about God's own heart. Our sin, our inability to save ourselves from our sins, our lack of any righteousness of our own, establishes on God's part a necessity to bring to us a righteousness that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Hear that? It establishes on God's part a necessity. You know, sometimes we think, you know, God could have just left me condemned and left me fallen away from it and done nothing to save me and left us a damned race with no hope. But that's our logic speaking, but it's not what the Holy Spirit is communicating here. The Holy Spirit is communicating that our inability to save ourselves created a condition that God would respond to and that God would meet. There are individuals who have this idea, and I think there's a certain element in which this is true, that our salvation is completely unconditional from God's side. The idea is there's nothing that we could do of good that gained our salvation. It's not like God said, oh, this person has intellectually come to me, this person has set his mind upon me, this person has set himself to seek me, this person has done this moral thing or that moral thing, or they've made the choice to receive me, and therefore, I'll save them. And so it's conditioned upon something within us, some positive thing that we produce that God responds to, and I think that's wrong. I think in that sense, no, salvation is not conditioned in that sense, but it is conditioned. It's not conditioned by our righteousness, but by our unrighteousness. It's not conditioned in response to our abilities, but by our inabilities. It's not conditioned by something that we could attain. It was conditioned by something that we were powerless to contain contain and grab for ourselves that could only be given to us by God. It wasn't our ability that we had that gained God's favor or compelled God to bring us His righteousness of Jesus Christ. It was our utter lack of ability to do anything to gain our way back to God. It was this complete and universal sin and our fall from God's glory that was the condition that God necessarily responded to to save us. I think what I'm saying here is that our sins and the lack of any way to return to righteousness on our part in God's mind left only one option for that righteousness. Should he make us? Should he create us? He would have to provide a lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. 
in order to redeem us and bring us back to himself. He would provide his own righteousness to us through faith. That is what compelled this necessity. Not my sin alone even, although that introduces the issue, that introduces the problem. But it's my sin and your sin before a God who loves his creation. A God who loves us and his love for us and the attributes of his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his solicitous desire to bring us to be with him. God is compelled by the maximal greatness of his love and his holiness, of his mercy and his justice to respond to our deep need and our great inability and make a way to bring us to his righteousness. All of us have little children and you know, there's a time in which we cradle them and we hold them and we carry them, but at some point in time, if they're developed, we take our hands off of them. We let them toddle and walk along, and initially, you know, they have to hold on to our fingers, or we even move their little legs, but as they're getting and growing, then, then we, at some point in time, release them, and that's how they learn to walk. Some of us might have a child that's completely disabled and capable. They're never going to be capable of moving and themselves around unless we provide it for them. We'll have to carry them in our arms and a, a loving parent doesn't leave the child there. He goes to reach down and pick them up and carry them. And God has reached down and sought to lift and grab us in the deep inabilities of our sin and to draw us to himself and to bring us into his graces. The problem is our instinct to be righteous is distorted. And we say to God, I can do it on my own. Hands off. Let me try again. Let me do it. Let me prove myself. I'll lift myself up. So God does. He leaves us alone. But even here, his purpose so that we would see that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no way this is ever going to work. This is an eternally long slog that I'll never get out of. This is futile. This is without any hope. So at some point in time, we surrender and give up. If you don't lift me, God, if you don't take a hold of me, I'll never be right before you. If you don't clothe me with your righteousness, I'm just going to be compiling and compounding my offenses against the righteousness that you demand. Forgive me and cleanse me and come. Reach me and take hold of me. And lift me up to yourself. That's what God has done. That's what God has done. That's the message we bring to individuals. That's a part of the gospel. God, God has come to save you. God has given himself for your sins because there's nothing you can give for them. There's nothing you can do. So deep the Father's love for us. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Sometimes as we trend into these things, Lord, uh, we find ourselves in logical traps who has not known the mind of God that he should instruct them. We don't understand. We cannot comprehend. But we see, O oh God, that you have said, there is no other way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this is the way you have made to save us. We've said it to people. Listen, if there's any other way that you could save yourself, God would have left you to it. He wouldn't have sent his son. He wouldn't have sent his precious son to die in your place if you could have done it any other way. But God, we could argue, oh, you could have chosen not to save us at all. 
not a loving God, not a God who holds dear his creation, not a God who wants to be magnified and glorified in that creation. God, we don't understand it. We, we can't fathom it. We don't know all that you saw in us, fallen and broken in our sins, that compelled you to come and die for our sins. But there is a glory ahead so wonderful, so profound, so good for us to realize with you that this is the only way. We praise you. We thank you. We look for that day. Oh God, how disobedient and willful to resist what you alone would offer us. Turn hearts to you, Lord Jesus. Move upon them to in faith believe in you alone, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.